Good evening, everybody. Tessa says, all right, good evening, everybody. How are you? So glad you're here. My name is Doug Hamblin. I am the Associational Mission Strategist, otherwise known as Director of Mission for the Franklin Baptist Association. And we are so glad you're here. Also, we're so grateful that Dr. Moeller had time to come here and do this tonight. I also want to say thank you to Buck Run for being our host facility tonight. They always do such a great job. And before I turn it over to Dr. York, I just want to share a brief story. I was a young man at uh, Southern Seminary many years ago, and uh, I had to sign up for my second theology class. I had Dr. Moore, but for some reason the times just didn't fit right, and I couldn't get him. And the only one, the only professor that, had, that was teaching that would fit my schedule was Dr. Moeller. And I'd heard all these stories about him, you know, about how he, he doesn't sleep but like three hours every night, and he reads like a hundred books, I think, in a night. That's what we heard anyway. Um, so I wasn't sure. About, anyway, I took it. And the first day, Dr. Moeller, he, you know, he's, he's uh, uh, lecturing, giving his lecture, and he, he uses these big words. And I'm thinking, okay, this guy's just throwing around some big words, trying to show off, you know, his intellectualism. But no, that is not the case. He actually lives there. He really does. And I have to say, of all the professors I've had, Dr. Moeller is the best that I've ever had because he teaches you how to think. So you're in for a treat tonight. You really are. So I hope you have your seatbelts on and ready to go. Of course, I didn't have Dr. York as a professor, so, so come on up with that. Yes. Thanks, sir. Well, good evening. Uh, let me begin with a word of prayer. And then uh, I'll introduce Dr. Muller and we'll get going, all right? Father, we're grateful to be here tonight to uh, just share in this time. We're so thankful for the ministry of Dr. Al Moeller, for really the way you've used him uh, in such an uh, incredible fashion in Southern Seminary, in our convention, in our nation, and in our world. We're grateful for the way you've gifted him and the way he uses those gifts to bring honor and glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is our desire tonight. We just pray that all that we do here might be edifying, encouraging, and we just pray that uh, people come with uh, an eagerness to learn, to grow, all for uh, your glory. So, Father, bless our time together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I do want to... Uh, just welcome all of you. Glad that you could join us tonight. And uh, I am so happy to introduce my friend, Dr. Al Moeller. Before I do that, let me give you a few instructions. He's going to talk just a bit. And then when he's ready to entertain questions, uh, if you have a question to ask, I'm just going to ask you to come to the mic. He's going to do this for an hour. You, uh, we've got mics here in the front. You line up. Now, we're going to have some folks there. We've learned by experience. It's good if you can ask that question to somebody first before you get to that microphone. So there'll be someone here for you to sort of tell them your question. That's not to screen your question. It's just to help you know how to say it, and it helps a little bit before you get to the mic. So we're going to have some folks there, some of our pastors, to 
to, uh, for you to share that with. And when you come to the mic, share your question with them before asking Dr. Moeller. And if you're not sure how to ask the question, they can help you formulate it so that you do. Uh, I, the first, I remember the first time I ever heard of Al Moeller, my dear friend David Miller was a trustee at Southern Seminary. And when he told he called to tell me that they had found the next president for Southern Seminary. And he said, you're going to love him. He's a dandy. And he proceeded to tell me how he actually believed the abstract of principles, which is uh, what every professor at Southern Seminary is, uh, is committed to believe, but in the past that wasn't always so. And as he told me about Al Mohler, I was so very, very excited that he was coming. Little did I know, I had, in fact, it was unthinkable to me at that time that within uh, four years I would be joining him and the faculty, and I've been there now for um, almost 26 years. So we've spent a lot of time together, and in that time I've just grown in love and appreciation for him. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to tell you one story. I love to tell this story. We were in Sea Island, Georgia, in a church there. In Ang it was an Episcopal church that uh, I think Charles Wesley started. Uh, and we, we were taking a tour of that, and the docent was showing us some of the features of this building. I think it had been built from uh, a ship. They'd taken the timber out of a ship and built this. And they were pointing out the stained glass, and one of them, one of the stained glass windows was a Tiffany glass. And the docent proudly told us, now that one is a Tiffany. And some innocent lady in the group held up her hand and said, well, what are the others? And the docent I don't, I don't know. And I watched Dr. Moeller. I can tell you what they are. And he proceeded to identify the school of uh, the different stained glass windows in that building. And uh, after that, I tried to figure out what does he not know anything about? And Tony and I, he doesn't know anything about yodeling. <laughs> so don't ask him any questions about yodeling. But it, it is a joy to go through life with him, to serve the Lord with him, to work with him as a brother in Christ and a friend. Would you welcome Dr. Al Moeller to uh, Buckland and Franklin Association. Thank, thank you, Herschel. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. It's wonderful to be here. And so to Doug Hamblin and the uh, Franklin Association, Franklin County. It's just an honor to be here with you. I'm very, very thankful. Uh, always, uh, always good to hear a good word from someone who had been a student. That, uh, that's very encouraging. And uh, that, that is where I think, uh, you know, the greatest legacy of a teacher preacher is to be found. It's in, it's in the, the God-given calling of teaching and just the experience and the relationship that's built that way. The conveyance of truth, as Augustine said, from one heart to another. And uh, then Herschel York. Herschel York was the first. I could put this a couple of different ways, and some of you who know Kentucky Baptist history will know what I mean when I say this. I could put it two different ways. I could say Herschel York was the very first Kentucky Baptist pastor to welcome me as the president of Southern Seminary. I could put it that way. I could put it another way. Herschel York was the only uh, Kentucky Baptist pastor. <laughs> <laughs> at the time, some of you know the controversy that, uh, that pertained at that time, which is 
I think we're 10 days away from 30 years uh, to that day. I think we're just uh, 10 days away from 30 years. So, uh, just uh, working and uh, teaching alongside uh, Herschel has, has been a great, great joy. And it's wonderful to be here at, at Buck Run once again. And I'm looking forward to this night and uh, the time we'll spend together. I want to start out just by reminding us of, of a couple of things. Number one, there is something super special about learning by means of a question and an answer. There just is. And uh, evidently the way God made us in his image and gave us the ability to reason and think, sometimes this is where it's uh, most profitable to, to think. We ask a question. And you know, the wonderful thing about asking a question, especially in the context of a group, is this. Other people have the same question. But there's a certain achievement in articulating the question. And then you think it through. Now, I want to tell you something else. It would be sheer arrogance for any single Christian to get up and say, hey, whatever question you ask, I can answer it. Because if you want to find, you know, a, a question that will stump me, I can guarantee I could tell you exactly where to go. Sports would be a great category. <laughs> uh, but there are lots of things. There's no one knows everything, and no one should, should uh, pose as if he does. The confidence I have is that based upon the authority of God's inerrant and fallible word, we can work to an answer. And, and that's what's really encouraging. And I hope to encourage the church just by saying, look, the last thing Christians should ever do is run from any question. If we follow the example of the apostles, we don't run from the questions, we run to the questions. Because the questions are a great opportunity. And at any given time, Christians need to be asking themselves, what are the big questions that uh, the people around me are asking? What are the big questions that unbelievers are asking? What are the big questions that Christians are asking? What are the big questions that our kids are asking? Uh, what are the questions maybe we're not hearing that we should be hearing? So once Christians are confronted with a question, you know, what do we do? Well, we know we go to the Bible, and, uh, and, and we'll seek to do that tonight. But I want to remind you that the Bible is not just a source for proof text, as if you can say, you know, I just ask a question, there's going to be a direct answer to every question in the Bible. Um, you're not going to find questions uh, answered in the Bible about, um, say, ethical issues related to stem cell, human stem cell research. You're not going to find stem cell research referenced in the Bible, but you are going to find the principles by which we should think as Christians about such a very modern issue in the Bible. And in order to think about thinking, let me just suggest to you something as a framework for, that you might find helpful, a framework for Christian thinking. Number one, every single human being operates on the basis of a worldview, okay? Now, when I was a small child, I don't think Christians thought about that. Uh, it wasn't less true, but Christians didn't have to think about it. Christians don't think about worldview until we find ourselves confronted with alternative worldviews. And, and, and thus, a part of what happened in the modern age, and in particular in the last half of the 20th century, and certainly is nearly inescapable now, is that we're confronted with people and in dire cultures that think differently than we think. You know, so I was asked by a, a reporter just in the last few days, in fact, another one today, uh, we're just talking, and, and uh, you know, how do you explain 
the current landscape of the abortion issue in the United States. And I say, well, just look, we're, we're down to basic principles. You've got, you've got states that are now adamantly pro-abortion right up until the moment of birth. And you've got states that are pretty comprehensively, at least legally, pro-life and indeed seeking to be even more consistently pro-life. Then you have some states in the middle. But you recognize that, as the Bible says, a curse to humanity is every man doing what seems right in his own eyes. But, you, but at least that tells you something else. That's what human beings do. I mean, human beings do what is right in their own eyes. In other words, they're all operating from a worldview. They all have a basic understanding of reality. They all have a basic explanation for why something's right and why something's wrong. And they're living that out. I don't know how many of you know the controversy over the Grammy Awards on uh, Sunday. You know, what was basically satanic worship. And, uh, and you talk about sexual confusion, gender confusion, all this just blowing up all over the place. And I actually talk about it on the briefing in the morning. It's one of those challenges on the briefing, by the way, because there are words in the news reports I can't use. That I mean, they're just right out there like in mainstream news reports. And it's because, you know, I realize that there are people all different ages, and I'm afraid, you know, some mom with a 13-year-old or a 9-year-old in the back seat is going to wreck her car trying to turn the volume down real quick. And I, I just don't want that ever to happen. So I just have to say, you know, if you want to know more about this, you're going to have to look to the news source. But you know what? <laughs> You're looking at a clash of worldviews there. Now, rarely do you see it that literally, graphically, but, uh, but nonetheless, there's just a clash of worldviews. You look at the LGBTQ issues, and you look at the advocates for the LGBTQ revolution. At least for the L, the G, and the B, I think they actually mean what they say. The T, I'm not really sure they always believe what they say, but the L, the G, and the B, I'm, I'm convinced they've at least convinced themselves and it's consistent with their worldview. So just think of it this way. Every worldview has to ask and answer four questions, okay? So this is, this is the entire worldview course, the entire set of lectures down to four points. Every worldview has to ask and answer four questions. The first question is, why is there something rather than nothing, okay? The second question is, what's gone wrong with the world? The third question is, is there any hope or is there any rescue? And the fourth question is, where is all of this headed? What's the end of the story? So why is there something rather than nothing? What's gone wrong? Is there any rescue? And where's all this headed? Now, it just so happens those four questions that every single conscious human being has to think about, those four questions are also the four great movements of biblical theology. They're the four great things of the Bible. Why is there something rather than nothing? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Christian doctrine of creation, the Bible's account of creation explains why there's something rather than nothing, because God in his sovereignty and in his glory created the entire cosmos, and he did so to bring himself glory. And in the midst of this, he made all these different critters, all these different creatures, all these different, you know, uh, objects of the cosmos. But on this pale blue planet, he made all these creatures but one creature he made in his own image. So, you know, this just reminds us that uh, even though, you know, the, uh, I don't know, we're in Kentucky, we got a lot of deer. Uh, the deer, they reflect the glory of God. But you've never seen a deer 
stop and ask the meaning of life and, or, or, or just reflect upon being a creature. The deer's the deer. That's all the deer knows. The deer doesn't even know he's a deer, actually. He just deers. That's what deers do. And, and then you look at that and you go, yes, but there's one creature who can't look at the cosmos without asking, what is man that thou art mindful of him? And so when you say, why is there something rather than nothing? The secular worldview says, well, evidently it was a great cosmic accident and a chance meeting of matter and energy that produced all of this. And we're just the, we're just the most complex, so far as we know, still evolving uh, organism. And there's no inherent meaning to life because you say, is there any meaning to life? Well, yes, if in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, then God determines the meaning. But if it's an accident, then guess what? It's an accident and we're all just freaks of the accident. And by the way, there's no real right and there's no real wrong. But the next question is, what's gone wrong? Because regardless, even the moral relativist, even the person who says there's no right and no wrong says it's wrong to say there's no right or to say that there's right and wrong. In other words, we're so moral, we make moral judgments about people who won't make moral judgments. And it's because made in God's image, we know that there's a good and that there's an evil. We also know that human beings are capable of indescribable reaches both ways. It's a sad thing, but, but why? So how did the creature made in God's image end up as we ended up? And there's the shortest answer in all the Bible, three letters, S-I-N, sin. So if the answer to the first question, why is there something rather than nothing, is in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The second question is what's gone wrong, and it's all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and that has cosmic consequences. You know, the physicists talk about the laws of thermodynamics. The second law of thermodynamics is known as entropy. And I'm not going to give you a physics lecture, don't worry. But the point of the second law of thermodynamics is that order tends to disorder and energy tends to dissipation. You turn a ball spinning, it's going to stop spinning. You know, the car runs out of gas, it stops running. Well, that's because of sin. The second law of thermodynamics points to sin. You know what else points to sin? Rust. You ever thought about that? Rust is a giant condemnation of human sin. And you look at that rust on the fender of your car and you say, what caused that? And then you have to realize, my sin caused that. No, you just realize that that's true. Not necessarily that you sinned and it rusted, but rather that humanity sinned and all these consequences came into the world. And that includes everything from, well, tumors to termites. So the world's trying to figure out what's gone wrong. And we say, well, you know, sin's what's gone wrong. Second question, is there any hope? Well, there's the gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him might not perish but have everlasting life. And you know, right now, because of the next book I'm writing, the book I'm writing right now is about the clash of worldviews, just kind of the things I talk about all the time. And so last night at 2 o'clock in the morning, I was knee-deep into Marxist texts I had not read before. Now, that'll either, that'll either get you agitated to write or drive you insane. I'm not sure which. You'll be the judge. But you know what? When I was reading these Marxist texts in the early hours of the morning, late hours of the night last night, what I realized is they're groping for a gospel. 
They're trying to figure out how rescue can come. And you know the conclusion they came to, the revolution of the proletariat. (laughs) Uh, But the point is that, that the worldview has to ask the question, is there any hope? So you look at all the people out there, and, and many of them, it explains a lot of the moral energy put into leftist causes. It's because people have a yearning to believe in something that's going to fix things. And so that's one of the reasons there's so much energy behind the ideology. And the last question, where is history headed? Well, that's the other thing we always have to remember, and, and that is that in the storyline of the Bible, creation, fall, and redemption, and new creation, that there's an already and a not yet to the Christian worldview, right? So, (laughs) you are, if you've come to the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you are justified. You're as justified as you're ever going to be throughout eternity because it is the righteousness of Christ that is declared to be yours through the miracle, the death burial and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and God calling you to faith in Christ. When Christ's righteousness is imputed to you, you are as justified as you will ever be. But you know what? I can just look at you real quick and tell you, and this is both a challenge and a comfort to you, you're not as sanctified as one day you will be. I can look at you and I know that for sure. Because I look in the mirror and I know it for sure. <laughs> Even though we are, we are as justified as we will ever be, we're not as sanctified as we will ever be. And that's because the New Testament tells us we are awaiting the new creation. And for believers, what that means for us individually is that we will be glorified. Our sanctification will be complete. And, that, and that's when sin will be no more. And that's when every eye will be dry because every tear will be wiped away. We're living right now in the age of the gospel in which people are coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the church has the glad task of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. But sin is still with us. The enemy still wars against us. And we are called to be faithful in the midst of this age until the Lord comes and brings this age to an end, and time will be no more. So, all that to say, sometimes the way we answer a question is to think, where's that question fall? Does that question fall in creation? Does it, is it, does it, does it fall, you know, in, in terms of human sinfulness in the fall? Does it point to redemption? Can it only be completed in new creation? That's the way we'll try to think through these things on the authority of Scripture. So, it's time to turn to your questions, and there are two microphones. You see them right here and right here. And again, there'll be people to help at those microphones. And uh, I do not promise you a comprehensive answer. I promise you that together we're going to work at how to answer the question according to the Christian worldview on the basis of God's Word. So, let's get to it. Yes, sir. Well, I I assume. Who's helping? Oh, these are the helpers. Okay, excuse me. I was going to get... That's, that's why I need help. <laughs> I'm a total fan of yours. Well, you're very sweet to listen and, and come. I appreciate that. I listen that. to your podcast. Thank I love, you. I love Dr. York, and I've been introduced to you through him, and I'm so excited about you. And all every time I see you on the Internet, I just listen. And John MacArthur. So. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm thankful to be in that company. Thank you. My question, 
isn't really totally biblical, but uh -huh. it, it plays a role. I'm, I'm big in the Republican Party here in Franklin County and uh -huh. we're in the Capitol, so politics is all around. And our women's group, we work very hard to study the people who are running for office, what they stand for, right. uh, how they feel about the issues like you first brought out, LGBT, trans, surgeries on the kids, you know, all the uh, CRT, right. DEI, all that stuff. And, and we religiously uh, check how they vote and everything. Mm -hmm. But you know, the churches uh -huh. do not support us at all. And we did get Dr. York, his name comes up a lot, um, with the abortion issue, referendum, uh -huh. you know, the second choice on the amendments to the Constitution. Right, 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 right. So why is it churches don't have a big role in um, explaining to their, to their people who the people, who the people are that are running for these offices, what they stand for, who to avoid. Uh, this is this is a no, and I I, th I guess this is a follow up to the question from your Jacksonville appearance, where the boy asked um, whether Democrats could go to heaven or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> I'll be glad to try my best at uh, both of those, actually. Um, you know, th there's a sense in which the first question you ask points to a real tension in ministry and in church life, which is that Christians, and, and we're in a minority culture now in, in terms of the modern secular West, Western civilization. We're in a minority situation in terms of being cognitively Christian, that is, we're, 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 we're self-consciously committed to Christian truth, Christian principles. And so we're in a different political place than the Christian church was. So just to take the matter bluntly, on the question of abortion, um, the church I grew up in never mentioned it once. I'm not condemning him for that because no one was talking about it. It was before the Roe v. Wade decision. We were in a state that didn't allow legal abortion. It was not a part of the conversation. So my mother was an early pro-life activist uh, after Roe v. Wade, and it exploded onto the scene. And then pastors were asking themselves, I mean, good, solid evangelical pastors were asking themselves, how do we deal with this as pastors? You know, what do we deal with this as a church? And look, one of the things I think they came to the conclusion, I was like 12 at the time, was this is a harder question to answer, and there's no one right answer for all places and all times. So if we were in Nazi Germany, and you look at the quiet, quietude of the church, you want to say, well, that was wrong, catastrophically wrong. We can also look at some churches that turn the church into a political organizing camp, and you can say, well, that's wrong too. And so what we need are pastors and churches to understand, and here's a distinction I want to make between the church and Christians. Okay, now it's not a distinction as in Christians must not be a part of the church. I'm a Baptist. They must be a part of a faithful local congregation. But sometimes I try carefully to say Christians believe, and I say it other times, the church teaches. Is that distinction helpful? Do you see I can say to the... So, in other words, I believe that Christians believe that life begins at conception. I believe that Christians should vote for, say, a personhood amendment. 
But the church primarily speaks to the preaching of the word of God and the gospel and helps Christians to connect those dots. So there are pastors who are not doing enough, and I share your frustration. There is a sense in which churches need to help non-church but Christian groups to do things that shouldn't be done in the name of the church. And uh, again, finding out how to do that. Sometimes pastors are cowards because sometimes people are cowards. Sometimes seminary presidents are cowards just because that comes easily to us. Sometimes it's, it, we're afraid to, to say something. Sometimes that's prudence. You know, it just sometimes turns out to say that this is why we need Christian organizations. I served for years as a member of the board of Focus on the Family. I've been on many, I'm, I'm serving on several boards right now of groups trying to get the kind of word you're talking about out. And sometimes it's really good to speak to Christians as a Christian organization. The church always has to make clear that its fundamental purpose is the preaching of the word of God and the proclamation of the gospel, the discipling of Christians. And so I will just say this, no church can be completely unpolitical in an age like this. But the pastor is right not to want the church to be known first uh, for a political affiliation, but rather for its, its obedience to Christ. So some of the rest of us are going to help connect the dots. Does that make sense? We're going to have to help connect the dots for Christians as to what that means. And, uh, and a part of that means that, for instance, I think it's absolutely right for Christian groups to say, here's where the candidates are on the issues. Here's where the candidates are on character. Here's where this issue tracks out in the Kentucky General Assembly. Here's where this member of the General Assembly and this member of the Senate voted and someone else. I don't want my pastor to do that on Sunday morning. I want a Christian organization to do that and make that information available to, uh, to Christians. And the second thing was, can Democrats go to heaven? And the answer is, and, and it, it's, it's a little, it's, it, it, so obviously, yes, there's, or, there's no political partisan identity in heaven. It is just really interesting to note. So I'm going to take out can, and let me just tell you that one of the biggest political headlines of the last week in the mainstream media was the increasingly religious secular divide between Republicans and Democrats. So it's not that being a Republican gets you to heaven. It won't. Some places it won't even get you to office. Uh, it's not that being a Democrat is in hell. Of course not. That, that, that's, a, that's an almost idolatrous, blasphemous question. But what the political parties do is sort people. And I'm old enough to remember when an awful lot of people who would have been sorted one letter are now sorted the other letter. And a part of the sorting is issues like abortion, gender, homosexuality, and foreign policy, and national budget, and the national debt. And so, but there is a secular, um, non-secular divide that's increasingly a part of that sort. So I just used it when that question was asked in Jacksonville. I used it to turn to it to say, look, people of like worldview tend to gather together. Political parties are one of the ways they tend to gather together. And political parties, just like people, are in motion and so neither the Democratic Party nor the Republican Party today looks like either the Democratic Party or the Republican Party in the 1940s. So I have to take a closer look. Thank you, sir. Thank you. i got to go faster, yes. Uh, Dr. Muller, thank you for being here. Yeah. My question is concerning Jesus. Yes. Uh, between when he went to the temple at the age of 13. Yes. Until he started his ministry 
about the age of 30. Yes. What did he do? Where did he go? He went to Princeton and got an undergraduate degree. <laughs> and then, uh, no, no, I mean, what a fair question. What a fair question. So New Testament scholars refer to these as the missing years of Jesus. But they're not missing because Luke tells us that Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So it was the period of Jesus being prepared for his earthly ministry. And one of the most astounding things found in the, in the, in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but in, as particularly we're dependent on Luke and Matthew here. One of the most astounding things is that we are told that when Jesus was there at roughly age 13, you know, was there in the temple and was kind of instructing the elders. And of course, his, his parents noticed him missing after a day. Went back to Jerusalem and found him. And then he said, well, why would you wonder then about my father's business? And, you know, ooh, that'd be a kind of a tense child-parent moment. <laughs> One of the most amazing things we're told is that Jesus returned with Mary and Joseph. And then it says, and was obedient to them. It's such a sweet statement. In other words, it was not time for Jesus to begin his earthly ministry. It was time for him to be obedient to his parents, Mary and Joseph, and to grow in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man until the time was right. I love the way the Apostle Paul puts it. In the fullness of time, uh, Jesus came in his earthly ministry. And so, you know what? Uh, one of the most amazing statements about the perfection of the Bible is its sufficiency. And I often have to use that on myself to tell me that what we're not told in the Bible, we evidently don't need to know until we see him face to face. So he increased in wisdom and in stature and favor with God and man, and he returned with his parents and obeyed them. I think that's very, very sweet. Uh, thanks for the question. Yes, sir. Good evening, Dr. Moeller. Yeah. On the political, political uh, weaponization of government agencies. Right. Is there any remedy, and where is this thing going? And if I could throw a bonus question in there. I throw a what? A bonus question. Uh, well, I'll try. Who is the best dean in, in the history of Southern Seminary? <laughs> Right to the core of the matter. <clears throat> All right. Uh, well, the second one threw me so off so much I almost forgot the first one. So here is something that didn't just emerge in the 21st century. It's something that really emerged in the way we know it in the 19th century, and it didn't emerge here. It emerged in Germany under Chancellor Otto von Bismarck, the Iron Man of Germany. He invented the modern administrative state. And so you knew it had to be Germany, right? I can say that as someone with a German background. Uh, yeah. Where would the modern administrative superpower bureaucratic state come from? Achtung! It would come from Germany. Indeed, Prussia, the most bureaucratic and militaristic part of Germany. The thing about the administrative state is it worked. You know, if you're trying to get, say, a system of roads built, that's the way to do it. You're trying to get a train system built, that's the way to do it. Uh, of course, he was trying to put together an economic system, and he kind of did it. Uh, but the point is that government isn't neutral, and big government is not big neutral. 
And this is where the central conservative principle of government is less is always better than more. Comes down to the fact that government is going to do something. And so if you think that's a promise, you're on one side of the political ledger. If you think that's a threat, you're on the other side of the political ledger. And by the way, conservatives can overplay their hand that because I, I, I do want food inspectors, I'll just say. I grew up in the grocery business. I kind of want you to trust me on this. I believe in the capitalist system, but I, I just say I kinda, I'm, I'm glad there's some rules about how long eggs can be outside refrigeration. Um, and, and besides that, and I don't want doctors to be unregulated to the extent that I want someone to recognize who's actually one and who's playing one. I just I would like to know that. Um, so there's a minimal amount of government that everyone wants. And, and for instance, conservatives want a minimal amount of government, but they want government to define what the borders are. And they, they want you know, a, a requisite order through law enforcement, et cetera. The problem is that government isn't neutral. And the bigger the government, the more the lack of neutrality shows. And big government fits a progressivist vision of bureaucratic control of the society. And the thing that defines bureaucrats is they enjoy controlling society. Now again, if that means making sure the road's straight, we're for it. If, if indeed the road should be straight. That's another point. You know, go around that mountain, thank you. Uh, but to the extent that means that well, you look, I'm not going to go into examples. You look at the overreach of the modern bureaucratic state, the regulatory administrative state, it's massive. So much so that it becomes, as leading conservatives of the 20th century understood, one of the greatest threats to liberty. And so I will simply say that the Bible warns against big anything that isn't God. That's one of the best things to say. The Bible doesn't trust big empire. That doesn't look out, that doesn't turn out really good in the Bible, and uh, big kings, and big emperors, and big pharaohs, and big government, but uh, that's just something for us to watch. It's a relative question given the age. Hey, most of us in a time of world war, we are understanding that certain things have to be done by a central controlling agency for everything to uh, work out well. Uh, the problem is when that's continued as a normal state of affairs. Do you know that Southern Seminary didn't have a dean? until the 1950s. It's an amazing thing. We were deanless for a century until all of a sudden we needed a dean. And uh, I can simply tell you, I was set up for this, but I can simply tell you the epic dean of the School of Theology is Herschel York. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Can you hear me? Okay. I can. <laughs> Um, I'm a sophomore at the Frankfurt Christian Academy yeah. Frankfurt here, and I've been at, talking to my um, Bible teacher about this question, and we haven't really pinpointed it yet, so I thought I'd ask, um, how does free will work with God's sovereignty, and how can we feel as if we have free will and at the same time be predestined? Okay, <laughs> great question, great question. What's your first name? Ruby. Say it again. Ruby Rouette. Ruby? Yes. Okay, sorry. My problem is not your voice, it's my hearing. Um, okay, it's a great question, Ruby. So let me suggest to you that I wish we had started with better language because I don't think the issue is really free will. 
I think that's, uh, that's a distortion because did you will to be born? No, you were born. So the most important thing about you, you didn't have any will in at all. Um, you didn't will to be born. Were you born here in Franklin County? Um, Indiana. No, well, let's see. Did you will to be a Hoosier? <laughs> at least for a, for a short amount of time. Uh, <laughs> but so my point is that, that in many ways, the biggest issues related to our life, even when we're born, to whom we're born, where we're born, what language we speak, all kinds of things, they have nothing to do with our will whatsoever. What is real is agency. And that's a philosophical term, but it might be helpful. So we, are, we have agency. We have real agency. And in that sense, we have something we could call free will. You know, you can choose vanilla ice cream or you can choose pistachio ice cream. Don't advise it. You could. Uh, you know, you could, in other words, we're making choices all the time, right? And you have, you have the experience of making choices, right? But, you know, your will is still not as free as you might think it is. Because you're not able to choose to choose a non a non imaginable ice cream flavor. I'm sure someone's going to come up with a new one next week. Well, the reason you can't choose it now is because it's not there. But that's that's not really a conflict between your free will and something. It's just an obvious fact. Agency is what's most important. We have the experience of making choices, and they're real, right? We make real choices. Sometimes we make real choices about things that our choice doesn't matter much in. You know, you can kind of choose to pay your taxes or not. Well, you probably don't have to worry about that too much right now. But if you do decide not to pay your taxes, somebody's going to come talk to you about that. Yeah, so in other words, there, there, just, there, there, there are issues in which agency just doesn't work all that well. But I know what you're asking. I'm not meaning to dodge the question. The Bible says that God is absolutely sovereign. And by the way, sovereign is absolute or it's not sovereign. You, you can't be a little bit sovereign. If you're sovereign, you're sovereign over everything. In fact, God's so sovereign, he can't resign his sovereignty. And so God can't even say, you know, I'm going to be sovereign everywhere. But right there, I'm just going to say, okay, I'm not going to be sovereign there. Because he sovereignly determined that. And so even now, he's sovereignly being sovereign right there where he said he wasn't sovereign. And so sovereignly speaking, he's still sovereign. Okay? And so yet... That extends not only to salvation, but to every area of our life, right? And it's tied to God's omniscience. Now, he's not omniscient, therefore he wills. He's, he wills, therefore he's omniscient. So, you know, if you do go in the ice cream parlor and you choose a scoop of pistachio and a scoop of chocolate and a scoop of something, that's not going to surprise God because he knows all things throughout all of time from eternity before there was time to eternity after there's time. And so we're not surprised by anything. But, you know, you really did make that choice. And sometimes that's a hard choice. And if they say you can only have two scoops, well, then it gets harder because you've got to decide which one you're not going to have. And so your agency is real, but your agency is already really limited by the reality of, of what's there. But it's still real. And, and so, for instance, if someone's deciding whether to shoplift or not, that's agency right? They're, and they're responsible for the decision they make. We're responsible if we, just, if we tell the truth or if we lie, we're responsible. In salvation, we are told that before the foundations of the earth, God chose those who in Christ would be redeemed and would reign with him forever throughout all eternity. So God's not surprised. But it's not just that. God actually created the cosmos and set into order everything that would bring about exactly what he determined before the world was created would be its end. 
And that includes not only what will happen to the Grand Canyon, it means the, your eternal destiny and mine. And the Bible speaks to this not only as God's foreordination, but as His election. That's actually the word. And so God chooses um, for the ends of His own glory. But at the same time, we're told that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. We're given the command to believe. We're told that, that salvation comes to those who call upon the name of the Lord and who believe, that the sign that one is saved is that one comes to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, is, is convicted of sins, repents of sin. So all that to say, the Bible says yes to divine sovereignty, first thing. God says yes to human agency, second thing. And the Bible says the human agency can only be understood in light of divine sovereignty. God wills to be so sovereign that he will make those whom he calls desire Christ. Thank you. And I hope that helps. Yeah, I hope that helps. The, the safest thing that I, I can think of is, uh, you know, Charles Spurgeon said that if you look at uh, it, uh, the, the outer gates of heaven, it's going to say, whosoever will may come. And he said, when you get inside and the gates close, it says, chosen from the foundations of the earth. They're the same people. Now, God is also omniscient as well as perfectly sovereign, and that means only He knows how this works. We just know that it works as He tells us it works. And so our job is to tell as many people as we can about the gospel and know that in the end, all in Christ will be chosen before the foundation of the earth. And you know, the safest thing about that, I'll just say to you, Ruby, is that if I didn't do it, I can't lose it. Thank you. Yes, sir. Well said. <clears throat> Good evening, sir. This may relate to something that you talked about about a year ago. <clears throat> I actually changed my mind about what I was going to ask as I stood here. That was sneaky, but go ahead. <laughs> Isn't that good? That's right. <laughs> it relates to my original question. You were talking about worldview a little while ago. Yes, sir. In 1 Kings 22, there's a very interesting episode that I'm sure you're familiar with with the prophet Micaiah. He's told to uh, check in with the Lord about a certain battle plan that is in... Uh, in the works, Ahab is going to be uh, going up to um, Syria and getting into a battle. And he says, uh, I need to hear from a prophet, a prophet of God. Yes. And Micaiah at first agrees with his ordinary prophets. But then he says, come on, give me the real story. And Micaiah says, okay, I'll tell you what I saw. He says, I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven around him on his left and on his right. And he asked him, what would you like to do? We need to have Ahab go up and die at Ramoth Gilead. How can we do this? And this council meeting takes place, apparently. He's relating this story. And he says, one says this, one says that. Finally, one steps forward and says, I'll go out and be a deceiving spirit in the mouth of your prophets. And so God says, go, do that. And I remember when you mentioned this in your sermon about a year ago, maybe it was two, and you didn't really get into the details of that. But I'm curious. What is your take on that scene? Does that have anything to do with your view of how heaven is administrated? In this dispensation, yes. And by dispensation, I mean in this covenantal period, yes. And, and, and this, that would include, so I'm, I'm going to include Israel with the church in this case, in this covenantal perspective. Yeah. We are given insight into the fact 
that God brings himself greater glory by bringing salvation out of sin, accomplishing redemption. So John Calvin put this better than anyone ever known, which he said, God's glory is greater in that had sin never happened, we would know him as creator, but we would not glorify him throughout eternity as redeemer. So God glorifies himself by arranging to be known by us as sinful but redeemed creatures as both creator and redeemer. We are told that, and, and this is throne language, so we are told that in the ancient world where you found a king, you found a court. And, and by the way, one of the controversies in England, you could say Britain right now, is with the new king, not nearly so popular as his mother, with uh, Charles um, the third, there are forces in Britain who say we need to get rid of a lot of anachronistic titles of people in the nobility. Well, the problem is they're all anachronistic. You don't need a keeper of the royal stick, you know. You don't need, you don't need the chamberlain or the chamber pot or whatever. You just don't, you don't need any of this anymore. Uh, so, in other words, if your rulers are going to get rid of anachronistic titles, you're pretty much getting rid of Britain, uh, which is one giant anachronistic title. And I, I say that as an Anglophile. No one's going to appreciate England more than I. But you know what? That's the way ancient courts were. They were just that way. And earthly rulers could be surprised by the treachery of their, of their advisors and viziers. The Bible gives us, at times, glimpses into the heavenly court. And God allows things to happen even in his court. I mean, even Satan's rebellion. Again, so God will receive more glory by being victorious over Satan and his rebellion than had the rebellion never happened. And in that text, I believe in 1 Kings, I think you said 22, you're looking at the, the close, and of course, uh, that's going to end with uh, Ahab killed in battle. I think it gives us a view into what we're allowed to see of, uh, of God hearing what even rebels would say and do and then accomplishing his purpose to confound the wisdom of the wise. Um, and so another thing is, look, one of the things we have to, and I'm going to use Calvin again here just because he's, he's so helpful in this. He says you have to remember that a part of the evangelical doctrine of Scripture is condescension. And he says, the best way to understand this is that if God spoke at us in full voice, we would be destroyed. If he said, okay, I want you to hear undiluted who I am and what my court is like, we'd be destroyed. We'd be annihilated because we can't handle his infinity. But he said the same way that a kind parent leans over and speaks softly to a child, God leans over and speaks softly to us in Scripture. And so we're told what's true but we're not told everything we might even want to know about what that means. And that's why when we're glorified, we can handle a bit more and we'll see you no longer through a glass darkly. And that's one of those passages I'd like to ask about as well. Yeah, very well. But, but let me just say this. The great theme of the end of that chapter is that God is the king of the universe and there is no human king uh, who can withstand him. Thank you. Hi, Dr. Morgan. Yes. My name is Jennifer Kantner. Hey, Jennifer. And uh, my subject today is souls. Yeah. So I was wondering, um, are souls created 
when life is created, like, or, or yes. were, so, were, were all souls created at one time and they're sort of like connected with a body at conception. And then as a sort of follow-up. Are you a member here at Buck Run? Yes, sir. Do they, do they deal in this kind of weirdo theology in this church? <laughs> is this a... And sort of... Sort of Special class in the soul. There you go. Okay. Sort of yeah. tied in with that is... I'm, I'm well, making... I was teasing your pastor. I it's know. a very smart question. And I think the answer is more important than most Christians understand. And I think I'm right. And sort of to tie in with it, at, at the end of creation day six... Yes. Was God finished creating everything full stop? Yes. So creation is ongoing, but not in the Genesis sense. So let me start where you ended. So every time a baby is born, you see creation happening every time. But of course, there's a prehistory to the baby, which includes the moment of fertilization. And it's at that point, we need to recognize a human person is created. But as David says in Psalm 139, you don't see it. His mother didn't know it. But, uh, and so there's a sense in which ongoing creation is taking place. But when we speak of creation, we mean what you find in the, in the opening of Scripture in the book of Genesis uh, when God created the heavens and the earth. And so there's a sense in which the Latin word here is continuo, which means it's the continuation of what was created. So when we speak of creation, we rightly mean looking backwards. But it's continuo. Okay, the soul. Things you didn't think you'd talk about at Buck Run Baptist Church. There are two and only two major Christian theories of the soul. One is called traducianism, and the other is called creationism. Okay, now forget everything you know about creationism. It's a different context. This is not six-day creationism. This is just it's a doctrine of the soul called creationism. Traducianism says that every single soul is traduced which is to say it traces its source to Adam. Not just to Adam, but to Adam's seed. Not just as a theme, but by seminal transmission. That is to say, through Adam's literal seed, souls are traduced. And, uh, and thus, the soul actually comes by that seminal transmission, and that helps to explain why in Adam we sin. It's because it literally did. We were there in Adam and uh, as his seed. And it helps to explain, I think, the continuity of the Christian faith. The other idea, there are only two really in the history of Christianity, is creationism that says that at the moment of fertilization, and, the, and by the way, years ago I could use the word conception, and everybody knew what I meant, but the medical communities messed up the term conception largely in service to the abortion industry by trying to make conception not fertilization but waiting until they call it the successful implantation of the fertilized ovum in the womb in the uterine lining now that 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 would allow for an awful lot of abortion before they'd ever admit there was a human life okay so fertilization at that moment god creates a soul, as God says, let there be life. Now, in everyday Christian living in a discipleship, your answer to that question is not important. Traducianism versus creationism. It only becomes important with two things. Number one, how do you explain how we all sinned in Adam? Now, 
has this federal headship in which we, we are, he represents us. We're in him. I'm a traducianist. I, 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 I'm not like I tell people, I'm not writing a book on it. But I think that's the classical Christian answer. I just, I, I, I don't think a lot depends on whether it's right or wrong. I think the creationists have more to explain than the traducianists. And you probably already regret asking the question. Not at all. But the answer is, I don't believe there's one great soul, and we're all just kind of given a little portion of it. I believe that we are made, and made means soul, at the moment of fertilization. And I believe that there is a tie to Adam directly. So when the Bible says Adam's seed, it's not just a metaphor. I think it's real. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Dr. Muller. Hi. Um, my question is from John 6. Yes. Uh, I was reading during my quiet time a few weeks ago. This is where Jesus walks on the water. He right. has just fed the 5,000. And uh, the disciples have gone out onto the ocean or onto the Sea of Galilee by themselves. And he comes to join them by walking on the water. And as I was reading this in John 21, yep. after he has told them, it is I, do not be afraid, it says, then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Yes. Um, my question is, could this be evidence of maybe another kind of miracle that happened at the same time? Um, yes. I'm into Star Trek. I like wormholes and, uh, you, you know, uh, uh, warp speed and that kind of thing. And I thought immediately, and I did look this up in Strong's, the word immediately means instantly. Right. No delay. Right. Right there, at the shore. Right. This word or anything similar is not mentioned in Matthew or Mark. Right. I did look. I thought, oh, wow. I think you're on to something. Oh, wow. Okay. Star Trekky or or I know it's Jesus. No, no I know. I know. I'll just say Bible-y. Yeah. Bible-y. Good, good, good. What's your first name? Janet. Janet. Okay. Here is what I think. Uh, first of all, John six is a pivotal chapter. Now you could say every chapter is pivotal, but I mean it's pivotal in the in the narrative of the Gospel of John. There's a turning point here. This is where Jesus uh, declares himself to be the bread of life. So you know he had multiplied the bread and the fishes and the feeding of the 5,000. And then some came to him and they demanded the next day another sign on the other side of the lake. They found him. And uh, Jesus really refuses to do it. Instead, he says, I am the bread of life. He who feeds on me, you know, will never die. I, it's the everlasting bread that the Father has given from heaven. And then in John 6, he gives the universal positive and the universal negative principle of the gospel. Uh, all the Father gives me will come to me, and, by, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. That's the universal positive principle of the gospel. The universal negative principle of the gospel is four verses later, later verse in the 30s, I think it's 37, where Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. So that's really helpful for us to know. All the Father gives him will come to him, and no one can come to him unless the Father draws him. That's important to know. Okay. So between the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus saying, I'm the bread of life, is this astounding, very short passage about Jesus walking on water. Okay, so Jesus is walking on water, and it confuses the disciples so much, Jesus has to say, it's me. Okay, here's the thing. 
you assume that if someone's walking on water, well, maybe I can't say you. In the time of the disciples, if you saw someone walking on water, you would assume it is a ghost. Okay. Jesus says, no, it's me. In other words, he is in his body. Bodies don't walk on water, but Jesus does. So he collapses mass. Space defies that. And then once he gets into the boat, they are immediately where they were going. He collapses time. So it just shows his lordship over all things. So you're right, it's distinct, but it's a part of the same pericope. He collapses mass and he collapses space and he collapses time all in about six verses. It's so cool. It is, yes. <laughs> I will say this, it's infinitely cooler than Star Trek. Yes, <laughs> thank you. Yes. Good evening, Dr. Muller. My yes. name is Micah Riddle. Yeah. Um, so my question is, uh, we had this Bible study a few months ago where we come across a difficult text in Hebrews 6. Okay. Uh, more specifically, 4 through 6. Um, I'll let you get there first. But, That's all right. I'm uh, there. So it says, uh, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the son of God for their own harm and holding him up to a contempt. So how would you explain that verse like as far as like more specifically in the area where it talks about like who have fallen away to restore them to a repentance? Yeah. Your first name? Uh, Micah. Michael, thank you. As you can tell, one of my problems is I hear it passes through. Got to ask again. Thank you. Um, one of the challenges in my life was agreeing to write a commentary on the book of Hebrews where you can't skip verses. And so I had to deal with this. And honestly, might not have dealt with it the same way if I hadn't preached through it a couple of times and, uh, and written a commentary on it. So one of the principles of interpreting the Bible is you interpret a hard passage in light of other similar passages. So if we do that, then even in the book of Hebrews, and this was very helpful to me, I just got out a legal pad years ago when I was doing this. I got out a legal pad and wrote every clear passage on this question. And then I wrote this one and said, all right, just given the good Reformation principle that you interpret a difficult passage or an unclear passage by unquestionably clear passages, well, even in the book of Hebrews, it makes very clear, number one, that, uh, that there are people who fall away. And then you have to add to Hebrews, you add all, everything found in the, in, the, in the New Testament. There are those who fall away. The question is, who are they? Are they all the same? And what is the explanation of the fact they fell away? And what are the consequences of them falling away? Well, here's the good news in one sense. When someone falls away, you don't yet know whether they're fallen away A or fallen away B. Because there are those who fall away and then are uh, returned to repentance and to obedience to Christ. And so any church that practices church discipline knows of people who have been away and then they've returned. So you have to turn every text like this forward and backwards because that's the way we live life is kind of forward and backwards. But there is a second falling away which never leads to any repentance. 
Okay, so one of the questions found in Scripture is, were they ever really believers? Were they engrafted onto Christ? Were they, were, were they regenerate? And, you know, you, you go down the entire question. And the answer is no. The one who falls away, A, and returns, yes, well, that's actually proof of the power of regeneration and what, what it even means to be united with Christ and grafted onto Christ. Um, but B, no, they never were of us. Another of the clearest passages here is found in Matthew chapter 13 with the parable of the sower and the soils. Okay, because that's exactly what it's about, right? So you have the rocky soil in which the seed doesn't penetrate, and then you have the thorny soil, uh, I mean the, 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 the pathway is what I mean, the roadway. And then you have the, uh, the, 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 the thin stony soil, and then you have the weed infested soil, then you have the good soil. So there's no question what you're dealing with on the road. The seed doesn't penetrate, right? There's actually no question when you're dealing with the good seed. It produces a harvest, some a hundredfold, some 60, some 30. He who has ears, let him hear. The difficulty is the middle two. And so there are those who say, no, they're both unchristian and always unchristian. There are those who say, no, the first one turns out never to have actually been Christian and the second one to be kind of a worldly Christian. Um... There's too much to unpack there. Both of those have some problems. I think the better way to see it is only over time do you find out if it's apostasy A or apostasy B. But here's the thing, and this becomes clear in the parable of the sower and the soils. There can be signs even of spiritual fruit and, uh, and signs of real spiritual interest, and there's even the presence of real spiritual knowledge. It, it, it's there even in, where Jesus says even what he thinks he has will be taken away from him. And so there are people with biblical knowledge who even appear to be growing in that biblical knowledge who turn out to have been unregenerate. And they cannot be restored. So that's the best I know. That's the best I know. Hebrews 6, first of all, has to be consistent with the rest of Hebrews 6, which is pretty fascinating on this. And uh, I think the parable of the sower and the soils is unspeakably helpful set alongside this to understand what is going on. I have no doubt that the seed that fell on the roadway and the seed that fell on the thorns are eternally lost because Jesus says that, um, you know, they, they wither because they had no depth of soil. Of the third one, he says, they never become fruitful. And of the last one, he says, there's great fruitfulness. So a lot of these things we'll know only eschatologically but I think the Hebrews 6 passage you mentioned just warns us against taking apostasy lightly. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, sir. Hi, Dr. Muller. Uh, first, I want to thank you for the briefing. For several days, I've been trying, up, trying to come up with some way to use transmogrify or some iteration thereof in a sentence. And thank you. you. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't been able to until now. As it so happens, the Democratic Party in America is pushing, or dare I say, transmogrifying even further to the left, and even American conservatism is not as conservative as it, was, as it once was. So do you believe that the conservative movement will transmogrify in a way that ultimately capitulates to the culture, or do you believe there can and will be a movement of conservatism holding its ground and causing a red wave? And does your view on eschatology play a part in your beliefs about this? Wow. I'm transmogrified by the question. Um, so the last part is, yes, my eschatology has to play a part in my answer to this question, which is 
I believe in a, what I believe is a biblical worldview based upon creation, fall, redemption, new creation. It's best defined as Augustinianism, which is, just goes back to the church father, Augustine, who in the crumbling of the Roman Empire wrote that great work, The City of God, and he put a lot of vocabulary, which is helpful to us. And what he says is to understand that as a Christian, everything good <laughs> will rust. Of course, Jesus spoke of this too. Jesus, uh, but Augustine just says, here's, here's what you understand. It is that the world will be forever at war with the virtues. Disorder will be forever at war with order. And so you can never say, here's our great civilizational achievement because someone right then is embezzling, someone's compromising, someone's, you know, looting, you know, while you're congratulating yourselves, someone's kidnapping your children. And so Augustine is very helpful in that, which means conservatives never, ever think we're winning. Okay, so to be a conservative is to always assume that our job is not to win, it is to preserve or conserve. That's why we're called conservatives. I identify very clearly as a conservative. And that means the first thing is we're trying to conserve. And if we have to conserve, that means someone's trying not to conserve it. And so that's why conservatives are sometimes called reactionaries because we're reacting to something. Yes, we're reacting to termites. We're reacting to thieves. We're reacting to those who are trying to Take away the things we need to be preserved. I mean, just take gender and marriage right now. I mean, you can get in trouble right now just for saying you believe that sex and gender are the same thing, or at least you know what I mean. That an XY chromosome and an XX chromosome indicate uh, male and female, period. Okay? You can get in a lot of trouble saying marriage can only be the union of a man and a woman. Uh, so all that to say... The things we conserve. And by the way, conservatives believe that the things to be conserved are the things that must be conserved in order for other conservative things to be conserved. Okay? So, in other words, we don't believe you can be conservative if you give up marriage. We don't believe you can have a conservative society that doesn't respect what's pre political, which is the family. Okay? And even the neighborhood. So, just to say, just the community. Okay, you did ask a good question. I don't think conservative and liberal are nearly enough to explain where we are today. And that's why I try to speak of four different things and ask people to think in this way. The two extremes are not conservative and liberal, they're left and right. And then closer together are liberal and conservative. The reason I want to say that is because AOC is not liberal. She's a leftist. Okay? And there are people on the right who are not conservative. They're not acting conservative. They're not living conservative lives. They're not upholding the virtues. They're not maintaining order. They're just about opposing the left. You know, putting on war paint, doing whatever they do. That does not make you a conservative. You know, if you have abandoned your wife in order to go to this political rally, guess what? You're not conservative, you're on the right. That also helps to explain the 20th century, helps to explain Germany. Uh, a weak left produced a very strong right. Guess what? There's horror in both the left and the right. Conserva you can be on the right but not conservative. And I want to concede, you can be on the left and not liberal. You know, if, if I could talk to a liberal like Daniel Patrick Moynihan, he's now dead, but he was one of the chief liberals of the 20th century, he'd be appalled by the left. Um, in fact, by the time he died, he was already appalled by the left. But just to make things clear, I got to remember exactly what you asked. 
I, I worry not so much about conservatives not becoming conservative, but conservatives just joining the right. And on the other hand, I worry about conservatives becoming liberal, and they only think they're conservatives because they're more conservative than someone on the left. And, and that's what we see right now. So on the way over here, I was on the phone with someone about someone the New York Times just hired, and they're going to say they hired a conservative. I'm going to say, no, you just hired someone more conservative than the leftists you have. You're going to call them conservative simply because they're not leftists. But they're not conservative by my definition of conservative. They're not trying to conserve what I think has to be conserved. They're not trying to draw, you know, obviously I've been in some big political controversies here, but I'll simply say if you see drag queen story hour as a good thing or as an achievement of the culture in terms of its openness, you're not a conservative, (laughs) no matter what you call yourself. And I always worry that conservatives are going to cave because that's what conservatives do when they forget what conservative means. And there's some conservatives that aren't willing to lose anything. That's, what, that's part of the problem with conservative politics is sometimes to stay in office, people say things more conservative than they do when they're in office. That frustrates me. shouldn't surprise a conservative because we believe one of the central principles of conservatism is original sin. So the liberals are always confused by hearing liberals compromise. We're never confused by hearing conservatives compromise because we understand the power of sin. The thing is we got to be willing to call it a compromise, call them out on it, and if necessary, kick them out. So I hope I'm making sense here. I think conservatives in the United States are in a genuine, what Barney Fife would call a genuine predicament. I think we are. Number one, I think we take satisfaction in big numbers that include a lot of people who aren't conservative where it matters. That's why in a state like Kansas or in a state like Kentucky, we can have a pro-life amendment fail the way it failed with the vast majority of Kentuckians claiming to be conservative. They clearly don't know what a conservative is or they don't know what they're supposed to be conserving. So conservatives are the people who understand our job is to keep proclaiming truth and um, trying to hold back disaster. There is no conservative utopia. That, liberals can have utopia. The left can have utopias. There is no conservative utopia. We're just trying to get people to leave the family alone and let us build a decent society here. And yes, please take care of the border and take care of national defense and do the things the national government can do and should do. But don't try to tell me that a boy's a girl and a girl's a boy and that two men can be married. Um, that, you know, I hope I'm making sense here. Thank you. Yeah. yeah thank you. Yes, sir. Um, hello. Um, What's your so name? Eli. Eli, great. Um, my dad actually came up with this question. Um, he your dad <laughs> set you up to ask this question? <laughs> no. All right. All right, Eli, go ahead. Go um, ahead. So we were wondering if... Um, so, do you prefer Lord of the Rings or the Chronicles of Narnia, and why? Eli, that's my favorite question. How old are you? Um, Eleven. Eleven. Okay, so, I prefer the Lord of the Rings because it's a far more comprehensive story. Thankfully, you don't have to take one or the other. I also actually think that even though J.R.R. Tolkien was a Roman Catholic, and C.S. Lewis was a Protestant, I think there's more Protestantism maybe in Tolkien than there was in Lewis, who's a better writer than he was a theologian. (laughs) I worry about the end of book seven 
of the Chronicles of Narnia, where Lewis kind of implies that Aslan declares that all people are well. Uh, that is not how the Bible ends. I think Tolkien's last battles are actually more in keeping with the biblical storyline. I also have to tell you, I didn't like Tolkien the first time I read him because I was trying to read, I was trying to read it pretty flat. I was trying to get out of it. I was trying to read it as if I was trying to get something out of it. I enjoyed it a whole lot better when I just read it for the story and then only later kind of figured out what a lot of it meant. So does that make sense? Yeah. I am really, really glad to own uh, a very big library of Lewis and Tolkien. And as an adult, I'll tell you, I've spent a lot more time in Tolkien. And that confuses some people who, you know, just think of it as kind of teenage literature. It's not. Uh, I also, I can't spend all my time there. I can't spend time there every week. But uh, I, I've really enjoyed, i tell you one of my favorite things reading was Tolkien's letters to his son as a father-son thing. Some really good stuff there. So, Eli, thank you for the question. Welcome. You like reading? Yes. That's great. Keep reading. Yeah. Thank your dad for the question, too. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you for being here, and thank you for thank the you. briefing. I largely became a conservative because of the briefing, or traditional conservative. Well, thank so, you. Yeah. Uh, so my question has to do with uh, what's called uh, divine hiddenness. Yeah. The, the Bible says that we have all have a knowledge of God within us, uh -huh. but there seems to be people who are genuinely seeking, who want to believe, but they say they don't. So yeah. how, how will we make sense of that, that observation in light of a biblical worldview? Yeah, okay. You, I'm sorry. You talked faster at the end than I could hear. Oh, so sorry. You, how, how do we make sense of that observation in light of a biblical worldview? Yeah, well, I think kind of the way we started tonight helps in that God's self-revelation is absolutely true, absolutely clear by, by gift of the Holy Spirit, and uh, absolutely sufficient. But it's not coextensive with God. God does not reveal all of himself nor his ways, and he tells us that in his word. He says, my ways are not your ways. He says uh, that, you know, I will not show you what I am doing here. And uh, I think the Bible just over and over again tells us of the secret that's another passage from the Bible, the secret things of God. And so, by definition, we don't know what this, uh, you know, kind of poetic after, you know, the weather balloon got lost over the United States. You know, there are people trying to figure things out all the time. There are people trying to, you know, have an espionage run to try to think. We, we, we can't spy on the secret things of God. They're hidden from us. There's nothing we can do. To try to, to try to figure them out. And in heaven, we won't know it all or really be God, but we will see him face to face. And, uh, and we'll, we'll be totally satisfied. I think it's really important to us to recognize we really do, we should find comfort in the hidden things of God. I find comfort as a theologian in the fact there's some things that God hides from us. And I simply trust him because there are things too high for me to know and things that would crush me if I knew of them at all. And so I feel crushed enough at times by the reality of the world. I would fear being crushed by God speaking to me in his voice rather than whispering. Thank you. Thank you. Yep. By the way, the Lord of the Rings, let me tell you one of the great frustrations. Where's Eli? 
Let me tell you one of the great frustrations of my life. Peter Jackson invited me to be one of the observers and uh, commentators on the filming of the first movie, The Lord of the Rings, and I couldn't do it because I had to be in New Zealand for eight weeks, and I couldn't do that and do this job, and I feel disappointed even now. <laughs> Would like to have done that, yeah. Yes? Um, our ladies' Bible study group have two tiny questions we were uh -huh. hoping you could answer. Um, first is, when Jesus died on the cross, yes. did he get to receive any sort of comfort from the Holy Spirit? And the second question is, is with Jesus raising from the dead, what can you teach us about whom in the Trinity did that? Okay, hold on. Bible answers both of those. I just want to make sure I, I answer them clearly. And your first name again? Dana. Dana, thank you. Number one, Jesus cries out the cry of God forsakenness. Oh God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which means he was receiving no comfort from the Holy Spirit. Okay. He was abandoned. So this is one of the hardest things but it's the other side of the substitutionary atonement. It's for us. He died not just for us, but in our place. And that means he bore in himself the full consequences of our sin. And so it is impossible for us fully to understand, but we have to say what the scripture says, and that is that in him was fulfilled the cry of dereliction from the psalmist that he was entirely abandoned by God. He bore that for us. Now, you also see that that's going to happen if backwards you read the high priestly prayer of Jesus in John 17, where he speaks of the intimacy he has with the Father that he had with him from before the world was created. And then he speaks of what the Lord has, the Father, has sent him to do and there's clearly the anticipation of being forsaken and that makes the the substitutionary atonement all the more precious that he it's when we say he died for us he bore the full so in other words he didn't buy the father off he bore the full penalty of our sin second question remind me Sorry. When Jesus rose from the dead, whom in the Trinity did that? Oh, well, that, that's easy. Thank you. We are told the Father raised him from the dead. So it's the Father's act vindicating the Son. And uh, you can read a passage like Philippians where Paul makes this very, very clear. And actually, even in, even in the, the apostolic preaching, wherever it's found in the book of Acts, it's, uh, it's God raised him. That means the Father raised him from the the dead, which is a very good point, and I appreciate you asking it, because some Christians say, and I even, we, even some of our songs really aren't good here, because Jesus didn't just rise up, he was resurrected. Mm -hmm. So Jesus didn't, it's not like Rambo coming out of the grave, the Father raised him from the dead. And so Jesus, I, I heard a preacher not too long ago say, Jesus got up and rose from the dead. No, the Bible language is the Father raised him from the dead. Thank you. And, and another passage says was raised. It's passive. Okay? I'm not about to say no. One more? Okay, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm going to do my best here. There's no way I'm turning her down. 
Is she asking the question? She is not. Well, then you just caught me with a very cute lure. Thank you. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, my name is I want Luke, to know her name anyway. Uh, Lucas Page and Clara Page. We drove yeah. all the way up from Bowling Green, Kentucky, because we love you and the briefing. How and sweet. miss this opportunity. Thank you for coming. It's good <laughs> to see both of you. Yes. My question is one that is often posed to me by mm -hmm. Roman Catholics when I'm trying to evangelize them and yep. persuade them of justification by faith alone. Yeah. And I've often been asked if this is an essential doctrine for the church. Yes. Why do we not see it? before Martin Luther. So how would you respond to them? And then even maybe some resources for justification by faith alone before Luther. It's a great, remember your first name? Lucas. Okay, Lucas, thank you. Number one, I think we find it everywhere we look in the New Testament. So number one, I'm not giving it to Luther. Luther didn't come up with the doctrine. But there's another theological principle, or you might say an historical theological principle that's helpful, and that is that heterodoxy produces orthodoxy. Now, I don't mean that the truth isn't there. I mean, the church doesn't know to say certain things a certain way until the church hears someone say it wrongly, and you go, nope, that is not scriptural. And that happens real early. Uh, it happens evidently in the book of Acts where Priscilla and Aquila had to take Apollos aside because he's not even talking about the Holy Spirit. He appears not to know about the Holy Spirit. And, uh, but the amazing thing is, is that the Lord did use him because when Paul gets to Ephesus, they're believers because of Apollos' preaching, but he was a heretic. By, but clearly, this is the New, we're going to give him a little slack. It's the New Testament, not written yet. It's being lived out in the book of Acts. So, Christians are having to figure out these things and listen to each other and say, no, that's right. This is not right. And the Apostle Paul corrected uh, the preaching of Apollos in Ephesus. But here's the amazing thing. Apollos gets sent out by the apostles later. So, in other words, he received the correction and, and went on preaching. In the year 325, the Council of Nicaea, the church gathered together in order because there was a teacher named Arius who was saying that the son was of similar substance as the father. And the church heard that and went, no, that's not right. That is not right. And in the Council of Nicaea, they came together and said, no, the Bible says that the son requires that the son is of the same substance as the father. That's why we have a Nicene Creed in the history of Christianity. So you don't have a Nicene Creed until you have Arius preaching the error, okay? So here's the problem with justification. I think it's as clear as can be in the New Testament. I think, you know, Romans 3 is as clear on justification by faith as anything I can imagine. And all of Romans, but I'll just mention that. So how do things get confused? Well, here's the problem. We will work works in anywhere we can. And the Bible says that works are important. It's just understanding that it's the one who's justified by faith who demonstrates the works. And, without, and faith without works is dead. So if the works are never demonstrated, then you're going to look back and say, well, we don't think regeneration ever happened. We don't think justification ever happened. So it took a while for the, for the reformers. First of all, you got the enormous institutional reality of what we would call the Roman Catholic Church. And you also have the fact that if there is a primal temptation to Christians, it is to trust in our own works of righteousness. And so it reached a certain point. So in other words, it took Arius to produce Nicaea. It took, you might say, Tetzel to produce Luther. It took someone literally selling the gospel 
telling people that they could have the forgiveness of (laughs) sins, excuse me, even for current adultery, even in the case of one of the German nobility, for adultery he hadn't committed yet. Tetzel says you can find justification in your good works of contributing um, to, uh, you know, what would be the building fund, basically, for St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, uh, selling indulgences. And that was finally the breaking point. So what I want to say is that Luther does not tell us anything the Apostle Paul hadn't already told us. But Luther has heard and been produced by a church that has been preaching another gospel. And it's so central that uh, uh, I, uh, I, I point to a Latin term that Luther used because I love it. He said that the article of justification by faith is, first of all, the article by which the faith stands or falls, okay? Articulus cadendus ecclesia. Uh, uh, but I love the Latin that he used to make the point emphatically. He said that justification by faith alone Uh, on the basis of the authority of Scripture, is norma normans non normata. That's what he said of Scripture. It's the norm of norms that can't be normed. It points to justification by faith alone, which on the authority of Scripture can't be normed. So, in other words, he said, the uh, justification by faith alone stands so pristine that any effort to refute it is self-defeating because you have just denied what Scripture teaches so clearly that you're denying everything. So I hope that makes sense. Uh, yeah, so it's that important. And, uh, but I want to speak on behalf of Luther, who would say, in no sense was he a doctrinal innovator. He was seeking to preach what the apostles preached, the faith once we're all delivered to the saints. Thank you for your wonderful questions, and thank you for coming here tonight. I hope this has been helpful to you. Thank you. I'm going to ask Dr. Muller to go on to the, to the lobby, uh, and back there, uh, we, there's a table with information about Southern Seminary and Boyce College. Uh, we want you to get, get that. Uh, everything Dr. Muller does, he does on behalf of uh, Boyce College and Southern Seminary, and man, am I grateful. He, he makes my job so much easier. He's also back there. There are books of his. He can sign books. Uh, you can meet him. And we want you to have that opportunity. The Southern Bookstore has several of his books available for purchase. Uh, and I am just so grateful to you for coming tonight. I wish we could keep Dr. Moeller a lot longer and a- let you ask more questions. Uh, Mary Moeller has insisted that I get him back tonight. Uh, and uh, and I'm preaching in chapel tomorrow, so I don't want this to go on a whole lot longer. I, I got to have some study time tonight. So... Uh, Let's stand. We'll just be dismissed in prayer, and then you can go uh, meet Dr. Moeller and uh, thank him personally. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness and grace tonight. We're so grateful uh, that the president of Southern Seminary stands here and unashamedly just proclaims that your word is true and that it is sufficient. Thank you, Lord, for people that want to know truth and who ask such great questions because they're seeking you in your word father i just pray that you will uh, send your holy spirit to be truly our teacher 
through your word. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you and good night.